0: I'll be reading from Mark chapter 11, starting at verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Say, Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, "'Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest heaven!' Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it, had, it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry, seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, He went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts.
1: All right, it is great to see you this morning. If you've been with us for some time this fall, we have been looking at the life and teachings of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. And specifically, we're asking, what, what did Jesus teach? What did he do? What is the meaning of his life, the meaning of his death and resurrection? And as a result, how do we, how do we live? How do we order our lives based on the life and ministry of Jesus? And so we're, we're seeking to learn the way of Jesus and to walk in it. But, but doing that is not just like putting on a, a WWJD bracelet. I don't know if you remember those. What would Jesus do? You know, maybe 20, 25 years ago, this was the trend. You'd wear it on your wrist. And I think the idea was like, you'd be in middle school. Somebody would throw you up against a locker. And right before you go to like punch him back, you'd see your wrist and be like, what would Jesus do? I don't think he would, I don't think he would unload on this guy. And so you don't punch him. And so that was the WWJD bracelet. And the idea was sort of in any given situation, we should know sort of instinctively, intuitively what Jesus would do and, and have the sort of internal resources to do whatever it was that he would do. That was the assumption. However, I think that's a little bit of a, a simplistic way of understanding who Jesus is, what he does, what he's like. And, and it probably overestimates our own ability to do everything that the son of God did, right? And if we're being honest, I think we look at passages like the one that we have in front of us today, Mark 11, and we have to say with some honesty, we have no idea what Jesus would do sometimes. Like if you look at the three scenes that we just read, First of all, he, he comes into Jerusalem riding on a young donkey. And I don't know that young donkey would have been the thing that we would select for Jesus. His disciples probably would have been like, we can get you a horse. Like there's, there are better ways to travel into a city than like a, a young donkey where Jesus' feet are kind of like dragging on the ground alongside of him. But that's what he chooses. And then second, as he's passing by the following morning, there's a, there's a fig tree. And he curses it for not having figs, even though it's not the season for figs. Like, what on earth is that about? At what point in our Christian lives do we, do we curse a fig tree for not having figs on it in a time when it shouldn't even have figs? And then he actually, you know, he enters the temple, and sometimes he comes into the temple and he teaches. You know, in the first scene in this passage, he comes into this temple, looks around, and then he leaves. But then he comes back the next day and he flips over tables. It says in another passage that he makes his own whip and he's driving out money changers and animal salesmen. He, he clears out the temple courts. And so how do we know what Jesus is going to do in any given moment? Perhaps it's not as, as simple as we would like to think. And perhaps there's far more to Jesus. He's more complex. He's simply deeper than we could ever imagine and put on like a WWJD bracelet. And nonetheless I'm still convinced that the only way for us to know how to live our lives, how to how to live in this complex and complicated world it's by immersing ourselves in the life and teachings of Jesus. In a very real sense Jesus is the answer to everything. Right? We teach that in Trinity Kids. Every single question the answer is Jesus. All right? Pretty simple. And yet life itself is not simple. Very complex often have no idea what to do. And so I don't know what you sort of came in with this morning, what you're carrying with you. You might be anxious, anxious about a relationship or anxious about your future. You might be discouraged or depressed and just sort of despondent. Or maybe you just feel a level of like boredom and lethargy, and you just can't seem to get any energy up, much less spiritual energy up. And in this room, I'm sure there's a just a a wide range of emotions and heaviness and burdens that have been brought into this room. And so it would be far too simplistic to simply say, look at Jesus. And yet at the same time, we can say with honesty, because of the depth of who Jesus is, wherever you're at and whatever you've brought in, look to Jesus. And so we're going to look at this text. It's a very unusual passage Like it it doesn't quite make the highlights of of, you know the Jesus storybook Bible. Some of it will be in there, you know. But in this unusual passage, I think we're gonna see extraordinary things, things about who Jesus is on a deeper level that will help us understand and live in this world on a much deeper level. So there's three things we're gonna see about our Lord today. We're gonna see that he's the humble king, he's the just judge. And he's our true sanctuary. So he's our humble king. He's our just judge. And he's our true sanctuary. So the first thing is that he's our humble king. Over the last few weeks in Matthew, uh, or rather Mark 8 through 10, we've seen Jesus make three different predictions of his death and resurrection. Chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10. He's telling his disciples that they're going to Jerusalem so that he can die on a cross and rise again again. And of course, they're still not getting it. They're not tracking with it. But they've made this journey to Jerusalem, which is a long journey from where they started in Galilee. They're moving south towards Jerusalem, but, you know, sort of, what's the word? Topographically, they're moving up because Jerusalem's the highest point in the region. In fact, they would have had to ascend about 4,000 feet in their journey up to Jerusalem. Now, this is the time of the Passover, which is a just absolutely huge celebration in Israel. And so people are coming from all over the country. They're all making their annual pilgrimage to the temple in Jerusalem. It's a long, difficult, exhausting, multi-day journey. There's all kinds of threats as you're walking through the wilderness to get there. And so the moment that you, you see the holy city... The moment that you you see the temple, you are overwhelmed with joy and with relief and celebration, and you have a week of just feasting and partying ahead of you. I mean, Israel knew how to do it. They knew how to throw, throw a party. They would last for weeks on end. They were commanded by the Old Testament. And so this is a moment of absolute celebration. It says in verse one, as they approached Jerusalem, Jesus sent two of his disciples ahead saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. And so they do this, and then in verse 7, it says, when they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Now, I don't know about you, if you're looking at this passage, as I began my study this week, my first question was just like, do we need three paragraphs on like the untying of the colt? Like we get that it's a young donkey and Jesus is going to ride in on it, but it just seems like a large amount of text. Like if I'm Mark's editor, I'm like, look, you don't waste words. You're very concise in your teaching, but could you condense like the three paragraphs on the untying of the colt? And so what Mark is doing here is actually incredibly significant. The reason there's so much space given to it is even though it's kind of an obscure moment, it's rich with symbolism and Hebrew meaning. At minimum there's six Old Testament references in the first 11 verses. And so the entry into Jerusalem on the young donkey, this was actually prophesied directly in Zechariah 9:9. Rejoice greatly, O Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so in this moment, Jesus is fulfilling his mission as the long-awaited Messiah of Israel. Now, the young colt was a symbol of humility and loneliness. As I said, a, a horse feels like it would have been a little more appropriate for a grown man, maybe even a chariot. That's how kings and military leaders would enter cities. But Jesus comes in on an, a young farm animal. And now this young donkey, it says that it's never before been ridden, which is, uh, means that it's a sanctified animal. In the Old Testament, in Numbers 19, it says that an animal that's devoted to a sacred purpose can't have been previously used in an ordinary way. So if you're going to use a donkey for for something set apart from regular life, it can't have been used in a regular way already. And so Jesus comes on this never-before-ridden young donkey, comes into Jerusalem. And and there's something interesting, even even in the untying of the colt, the untying of this young donkey. There was a commentary I was reading this week that was like pages on pages on pages of the theology of untying the donkey— it was a bit much, to be honest, but, but the summary of it is that in Genesis 49, Jacob, right before he died, he gathered his 12 sons around them, and he gave, gave each one of them a blessing. And Jacob, what he speaks over Judah, who is the one who would, from whom would come David, from whom would come Jesus, Jacob says this over Judah, the kingdom will not depart from Judah until the one to whom it belongs shall come, him with his colt tied to the branch. And so as Jesus has his disciples untie this young donkey, and as he walks into the city on this colt, little do the disciples know, but they are in a way crowning him as a Messiah through the words of a prophecy that was about 2000 years prior. Now, still, if the the Messiah vibe isn't strong enough, we'll pick it up in verses eight through 10. It says, many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father, David, Hosanna in the highest heaven. Now that word Hosanna, it's Hebrew for save us. And so these people are are crying out as Jesus enters the city, save us. Save us, Holy One of Israel. I mean, it's, it's a remarkable statement of, of faith in Jesus. If, if nothing else, as, as a great prophet, as a man of God coming into their city, they're, they're just short of explicitly calling him the Messiah. But in essence, that's what they're doing. They're saying, may your kingdom come here and now in Jerusalem and they're taking off their, their jackets and their robes, and they're spreading them out on the dusty ground, praising the name of Jesus. Now, what we know on, on this side of the story is how much can change in just three or four days. Now, something that's really significant is we're here in Mark 11, in Mark goes 16 chapters, but these final 16 chapters actually only cover eight days. And so I've got a slide that I think will help us to to see this and keep this in mind over the next few weeks in the messages. But our passage reflects this first Sunday. Sometimes it's called Palm Sunday as we look back on it over Holy Week, but it's the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. On Tuesday and Wednesday of this week, we see Jesus returning into the temple to teach. He does the same thing on Thursday. And then on Thursday evening, he gathers with his disciples in the upper room. He washes their feet. They share a meal together. And then they go out together. Judas goes on his way, but then they go together to the Garden of Gethsemane. That's Thursday night. He's arrested, taken into custody overnight. And then Friday morning, he's he's on trial, a very unofficial trial before Roman and Jewish leaders. Friday morning, it says at 9 a.m., they hung him on a cross. And so these people that were crying out, Hosanna, save us, Holy One of Israel on Sunday, by Friday morning, they're yelling, crucify him. Crucify him. And so it says that they hung him on the cross at 9 a.m. At 12 o'clock noon, darkness fell over the whole land and people dispersed. And at three o'clock, it says, Jesus breathed his last and gave up his spirit. The earth shook dead, were raised out of their grave. And it says a Roman centurion looked on all this and said, surely we have killed the son of God. Of course, Sunday morning, just a week after this episode that we're seeing here, which is sort of a, a preview and a precursor and a prophecy of the following Sunday itself, the women and disciples arrive at a tomb and find it empty. I love the angel who says, why would you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He is risen. And so this is the week that we're going to spend the next two months really looking at. And what does this show us? What does this show us about who Jesus is and what he came to do? The first thing is that he is our humble king arriving on a donkey to the praise of men and fulfillment of all of God's prophetic words. He lived to die, and he died so that we might live. Now, the second thing is that Jesus is also our just judge. It says in verse 12, The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance, a fig tree and leaf, he went to, to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. Now it says later in the chapter verses 20 and 21, in the morning as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Now this is a sort of a strange little inclusion in the gospel of Mark. Really, it's the only incident where we see a, a type of miracle that's not bringing about life and healing and restoration. All of Jesus' miracles are, are kind of a coming back to life as it was supposed to be before sin entered the world. And so the sick are healed, the, the blind are given sight, the dead are raised. But this, is a, this has sometimes been called the miracle of destruction. But I think the right way to look at it is it's not exactly as a miracle but rather as an enacted parable. It's, it's a teaching mechanism for Jesus. It's a, it's a physical demonstration of a spiritual truth. And the clear spiritual truth that Jesus is trying to make here is that he's casting judgment on Israel. He's saying Israel is this tree. They're supposed to be covered in fruit. They're, they're God's people. They're supposed to be in, in full bloom with fruit for all nations to eat from. And yet there is nothing on the vine. To bear fruit in the Bible means that you are intimately connected to God and that with his life flowing through you, there's a, a visible evidence of holiness and love flowing through you. And so Jesus is saying this of Israel. And so it comes to pass. This is Jesus' righteous judgment or his justice in action. See, to the, to the poor and to the needy, Jesus shows himself humble, shows himself gentle. A, a bruised reed he will not break, a, a smither, what is the word, smothering, uh, smoldering wick. Thank you. That's why he's an elder now. <laughs> smoldering wick he will not snuff out. And yet to those who are proud, to the arrogant, he gives warnings. He says hard words. He pronounces judgment. And so it's a, it's a warning for us that I think we need to hear as, as good and church-going types of people. Do we, do we really know the Father? Do we really know the heart of God? Can we look to our life and can others look to our lives and say that there is fruit being, being demonstrated here? Is there fruit on display in our life is the love of God so flowing through me that people can see that in how I treat them? And yet at the same time, it's not only a warning, it's also an encouragement. Because if you're, if you're living in community and you're serving and loving other people, even if you don't feel like you're growing, or even if you're struggling in your walk with the Lord, struggling to pray, struggling to read, others can look at your life and say, I see the fruit of God in you. I see what God is doing in you. And though it's hard, you can be encouraged. I can can see it on the branches of your life. And so it's a warning, but it's also an encouragement. See, Jesus always, his character is a paradox that we have to hold together. He's, He's high and mighty, but he also stoops low to save the poor and needy. He approaches us in Weakness, and yet he's not the type of weak that lets sin go unpunished. He's the lion and he's the lamb. And so he is simply Jesus. We don't get to define his attributes, we don't get to decide what parts of him we like and we don't like, but rather we orbit ourselves around him, not the other way around. And so he, he curses this fig tree pronounces judgment on Israel. And yet even here, even in this moment, this, this whole passage that's centered on the temple, there's a word of amazing grace. And that's the third thing, that Jesus himself is our true sanctuary. Now think about this, the, the temple is the place of the, the presence of God. In verse 15, it says, on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts See, the temple is at the heart of this passage, but if we pull back even further, we see something true of the temple. We see that the temple is a way of pointing us to the presence of God, pointing us to one of the original words, which is sanctuary. And sanctuary, it means the place and the presence of God. And so if you think all the way back to the beginning, when God created Adam and Eve, He placed them in sanctuary. He placed them in the Garden of Eden. Where there was no evil, there was no pain, there was no hurt, there was no death, and where God's presence permeated absolutely everything. That was true sanctuary. And yet when Adam and Eve sinned, they were banished from this sanctuary. All of life, ever since, has been trying to get back to that sense of sanctuary. It's what we were created for. It's what our our hearts and our bodies are hardwired for. And so we're longing to get back to sanctuary, even though we can't get back ourselves. And so God made a provision. God made a way for people to still enter his presence on earth. And he gave them the temple. First, it was a a makeshift tabernacle, a tent of meeting, and then it became this marvelous temple. It was a way for people to enter the presence of God without being totally consumed. However, the temple had all of these provisions. The temple itself was a series of buildings within another buildings. The outer courts were for the Gentiles, but then the Israelites could go into the inner court. That's where they would do their worship services, where they would hear God's word taught, where they could have fellowship with one another. But even within the inner courts was the holy of holies, the innermost courts of the temple. And this is where the presence of God was fully manifest. Now, nobody could enter the holy of holies. Nobody could could go through the, the thick curtain that was as, as thick as our walls with the drywall and the studs. I mean, this thing was like 12 inches thick of fabric, not like a, you know, just a curtain you hang in your house. Nobody could enter this holy of holies except once a year and only the high priest and only with a blood sacrifice. We can't just walk back into sanctuary unless our sins are covered. And so what what does the temple cleansing mean? Why does Jesus come in and why does he flip over the tables and drive people out? What is it that he's doing? I think one of the most most important elements of this story that we can overlook is the fact that he was cleansing the outermost courts. He's cleansing the court of the Gentiles. I mean, think about that first, the fact that the, the temple of Israel had an entire place just for the outsiders, for the Gentiles. This is the place where they were supposed to be able to hear God's word and and reflect on it and and learn how to pray and learn how to follow God even as outsiders. And it's because Israel's calling was to be a light to the nations. That's why in giving the, the temple design to the people of Israel, God created this space for the Gentiles, for the outsiders to come and to a certain degree to enter his presence. Isaiah 56, we read it in the call to worship. God says, Let no foreigner say the Lord will exclude me from his people. To Gentiles who hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and my walls an everlasting name. To foreigners who love the name of the Lord, I will give them joy in my house of prayer. A house of prayer, that's the line that Jesus is picking up on in Mark 11. And so this is where Jesus was going and, and driving out the money changers and the animal salesmen. And so picture this. In and, and the first century, there was a historian named Josephus who said that in a single week, 250,000 lambs would be sacrificed. And so they, the Israelites had had sort of transitioned this outermost court for the Gentiles into like a, a, a giant mall. Or you think about 250,000 animals, tens of thousands of people in there in a single week. This is like... A combination of like Wall Street trading floor meets Vegas casino, and then you add in like a hundred thousand, you know, head of livestock. So just totally chaotic. And yet this was the place the Gentiles were supposed to find God through quiet prayer and reflection on his word. The problem is twofold. First, that the Israelites have turned the temple into a place of business. And second, that they have totally rejected their calling to make room for the Gentiles. The Israelites wanted to purge the temple of the outsiders. But Jesus comes in and purges the temple for the outsiders. He's making space for them. He's making space for us. Now, on this side of the story, as Christians, we can see that Jesus has one purpose for our gatherings, for our spaces, Sunday gatherings, everything that we do as a church. And to use its phrase, it's that we might be a house of prayer for all nations. Jesus is picking up on that theme from Isaiah 56, saying the purpose of our gatherings is that we might be a house of prayer for the sake of all nations. And so I think it's here that we as a church can pause and say, what what do we need to see in this passage? What do we need to ask ourselves? Could it be that sometimes when we gather, we're simply going through the motions? There's such a a temptation in the American church to just put on nice clothes and put on a nice smile and, and say that everything's great, to develop our own little cliques and our own insider language so that outsiders no longer feel welcome." Are we going to do that or are we going to let Jesus determine our purpose? Are we truly going to be a house of prayer in his name? I was reading a new prayer book this week and the author was saying the church is busy with so many things and yet the one thing is, that's needed is so often lacking and that's prayer. Leonard Ravenhill, a pastor from a previous generation, he said, no man is greater than his prayer life. I think that's true, and I think it's also true of churches. No church is greater than its own prayer life together. That's why I'm so encouraged in this congregation and the the ways that we've leaned into prayer and the ways that we've learned how to pray in the last couple of years. We didn't do congregational prayer this morning because we did the installation, but our congregational prayers, if you were here a year and a half, two years ago, pre COVID, when we started doing them, it was kind of a struggle. Like maybe we'd get a couple people to pray. We started praying before our services started praying in and, and every community group. It was always sort of there and sort of in the background. But nobody would come into Trinity and say like, man, this is a house of prayer. And yet I was so encouraged and blessed, even in our, our pre-service prayer meeting, the, the prayers of our people rising to God, interceding for, for you all, for those that are coming in, that they might know and experience the love of God, that true community might be built here. We're discovering over and over that the true work of ministry is prayer. And so I hope you've, you've picked up by now, if you've been here for any amount of time, The two of the things we love, two of the things that we talk about the most, it's the gospel and the presence. The gospel is this announcement that life with God is offered to us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus entirely by grace. And that gospel message enters us back into the very presence of God. We get to come before him, covered in the blood of Christ, In the same way that the Israelites long to enter the innermost courts, we can approach God through Christ. And so to sort of go back to the introduction, I I don't know where you're at, but I know that there's anxiety in the room. I know that there's discouragement in the room. I know that there's sort of despondency and, and boredom in the room. And so I don't know exactly where you're at and I don't know every dynamic of your story. And yet at the same time, I think I have an idea of what it is that you most want. And I think what you most want and certainly what you most need, what I most want and what I most need, it's that sanctuary. It's the presence of God. Like the unmitigated, unfiltered presence, the love of God with no no veil, no wall separating us. It's to simply return to God where he is and to live in the fullness and light of his presence. Without any evil, without any brokenness, without any death, without any sin, we're all longing to get back to sanctuary. It's what we were made for. See, we long to return to sanctuary, but we can't get back up. And so God sent sanctuary down to us. Like we couldn't enter the Holy of Holies without the priest and the Lamb and the one day. And we look at what Jesus has opened up to us. He is our new high priest. He is the sacrificial Lamb of God. Now every single day is the day of atonement. My friend and mentor Scotty Smith, he's he likes to say sanctuary isn't a where, it's a who. It's not a place, it's a person. And so we remember looking at this passage that the moment that Jesus died, that temple curtain was torn in two from top to bottom, this thick wall of a curtain that separated God and man, it all came down at the moment of the cross. It didn't just tear, it was rendered completely obsolete. We now all have complete and permanent access into the presence of God. If we look at this passage and we see Jesus, he wasn't just overturning tables, he was overturning the entire sacrificial system. He wasn't just opening the outer courts to us outsiders, he was opening the innermost courts. He was opening to us the very heart of God. He's providing us a way back to that elusive dream, that thing that we've wanted, that thing that we've needed our entire lives. This true living sanctuary. The presence of God. It's not a where, it's a who, it's not a place, it's a person, Jesus Christ. Let's pray.